We continue our series in Romans. We are in chapter 2. Before we turn to God's inerrant and infallible word, let us turn to the Lord in prayer that God might bless the reading and hearing of his word. Please pray with me. Our Lord and our God, now as we hear your word, Fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence. Sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth. Shape our wills that we may desire your ways. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, hear the word of the Lord. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. As we begin this Advent season, a time when we not only meditate on and stand in awe of God coming to dwell among us, condescending to our level by taking on flesh in Jesus Christ, but also a time when we consider the second advent of Christ, when when he will come again in power and glory to set all things right. It is appropriate then that we think about judgment. And so it is providential that we are here in Romans 2 on this first Sunday of Advent. And perhaps as we have moved through the latter half of Romans 1 and into Romans 2, you have grown weary of hearing about God's judgment. For the past two weeks alone, you've heard about how those who presume on the riches of God's kindness by their unrepentant hearts are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of God's righteous judgment, and about how those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth will be met with wrath and fury, as well as tribulation and distress. And you might be thinking, enough already, I get it, let's move on. I would like to suggest, however, that the weightiness of this matter should give us pause. Think about it, Jesus Christ is coming again. And when he does, it will not be all sunshine and roses, 
He's coming to judge the living and the dead. Think about it. We have all of these images in Scripture to describe this day that the Old Testament prophets call the day of the Lord. And some of these images describe the blessings that will be poured out on God's people on this day when Jesus will return and God will gather His people together from the ends of the earth and they will be vindicated. The world that groans under the weight of sin will pass away and will be replaced with a world in which God dwells eternally with His people. Pain and illness and death will be no more. Evil will be once and for all eradicated. The people of God will be brought into God's everlasting peace and protection. They will have no want. These are some of the promises of God for his people. That all who are in Christ should set their hope on and long for. But there is another side of that day as God deals with all in this world that has opposed him. So some of the images concerning the second advent of Christ are, well, horrifying. Like Amos 5.20 Amos 5, 18 through 20, which says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? This is pretty terrifying stuff. But notice what Paul says about the coming judgment here in Romans 2. He says that this day is according to my gospel. He calls this truth part of the gospel message. Judgment and good news might not sound like they go together. But unless sin has truly offended God, we don't truly need atonement. Unless we have been separated from God by our disobedience, we don't need reconciliation. Unless we are in danger of eternal punishment, we don't need rescue. The gospel tells us that Jesus didn't come to give us a happy and stress-free life here on earth. He came to take upon himself the punishment of sinners that they might be set right before God and thus be saved from God's just wrath on the last day. This is what the gospel proclaims. It is a word of comfort for all who have turned away from their sin and who to Christ flee to find their salvation. It is also a word of warning to all who continue to suppress the truth and persist in their sin. So as John Piper very simply and poignantly puts it, God will judge. And if he renders a positive judgment for you, then you enter into everlasting and ever-increasing joy. But if he renders a negative judgment, then you go to hell, tormented forever. We should tremble at the thought. The understanding that our sin has offended God and that the just punishment for our sin is everlasting torment should cause us to shudder before Almighty God. Do we? Too often here in America, our approach to judgment seems to be pretty flippant. We dismiss its reality. We tell ourselves that everyone floats off to their personal paradise after death. 
Or we simply think it is of no concern because it doesn't apply to us. We fail to think seriously on eternal weightier matters. And so spirituality gets reduced to a means by which we receive benefits in this life or as a means to cope with hardships and losses here on earth. We don't heed Paul's instruction to the Colossians to set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, was grieved by the way in which Christians of his day so glibly approached eternal matters as he wrestled to find assurance of his own faith. He wrote this, I saw old people hunting after the things of this life as if they should live here always. And I found professing Christians much distressed and cast down when they met with outward losses. Lord, thought I, what a do is there about such little things as these? What seeking after carnal things by some and what grief in others for the loss of them. If they should, if they so much labor after and shed so many tears for the things of this present life, how am I to be bemoaned, pitied, and prayed for? My soul is dying, my soul is damned. Were my soul but in a good condition, and were I but sure of it, ah, how rich should I esteem myself, though blessed but with bread and water. I should count those but small afflictions and should bear them as light burdens." As consequential as the joys and hardships of this life may seem, they are nothing compared to what is to come. They are, as Piper puts it, like dust on the scales compared to the Mount Everest significance of the judgment of God. The weightiness of the coming judgment warrants our time and attention, not as a quick overview or as a passing glance, in order to get on to happier and more satisfying matters. This is why the Apostle Paul devotes the first few chapters of Romans to this indictment against all of humanity, painting such a bleak picture of utter hopelessness to render ourselves righteous before God. We must understand the depth to which we have offended God and how we are justly deserving of his wrath. In order that we correctly understand our neediness for a Savior and the depth to which God goes to rescue us from the pit. It is against the other darkness that the light of the gospel truly shines. Thus the judgment not only warrants our attention, it demands that our lives be reoriented as a result. And this is why the Christian calendar, which begins on this first Sunday of Advent, begins with a focus on the second coming of Christ. The Advent season bids us to slow down and to ponder eternal things. It's a time to examine ourselves and to repent of sins in order that we might have a true assurance of faith, not a thoughtless assumption that God is unconcerned with our disobedience. Let all mortal flesh keep silence. And with fear and trembling stand, ponder nothing earthly minded, for with blessings in his hand, Christ our God to earth descendeth, our full homage to demand. So let's devote ourselves to understanding Paul's continued indictment here against humanity. He's laid out how all have turned away from God and rejected His created order. All have suppressed the truth to follow their own desires. 
In chapter 2, he's shown that even those who have sought to live good moral lives stand guilty before God because they too are not without fault. They do the very same things that they understand condemn others before God. God's judgment, therefore, will be righteous according to what we have done and impartial and without favoritism, meaning that Jews and Gentiles alike will be held to the same standard and judged equally. Now, in light of Paul's indictment thus far, it could be argued that the Jews have an advantage because they have been given the law. If one is judged based on what one has done and the law lays out that which is pleasing to God, then it's unfair that the Gentiles are judged on a standard for which they have never been given. I remember one of the classes I took in undergrad, microbiology. I was a biochemistry major before finally accepting my call into vocational ministry. Anyhow, I didn't make a very good grade in microbiology, but it wasn't due to a lack of trying. I went into the first exam well prepared, or so I thought. I had studied all of my notes from class. I had read all of the assigned readings, yet I discovered that there was a good number of questions on the exam that contained content that I had never seen before. Well, maybe I didn't pay attention well enough in class, so I decided I would work harder. But each subsequent exam revealed that apparently I was missing something. Was there another textbook? Was there some articles that I hadn't read? Was there a study session in which the professor gave additional content? By the end of this semester, I was thoroughly frustrated and complained to some of my friends in the class about how ridiculous the exams were that we had been given. It was then that I discovered that all of them had A's in the class. How could this be? But then they told me what I had been missing, which they apparently thought I knew. Apparently, the professor who had been teaching for a number of years at that point wrote exams the first few years that he had taught. Then he began to create exams with questions from the old exams, despite the fact that the textbook had changed and probably some of his lectures. My friends had inside knowledge from those who had previously taken the class that all one needed to do to get an A in that class was get copies of those old exams. So they did. And while I spent hours studying notes and reading the textbook, which turned out to be worthless as a means to prepare for the exams, all they did was glance at a few old exams. They got A's, and well, I didn't. I had been judged unfairly on information that I had never been given. Maybe you have had a similar experience. If so, then perhaps you are sensitive to the seeming unfairness of what Paul has thus said in chapter 2. Paul anticipates that argument here and he has a response. His argument, his answer is that while the Gentiles do not outwardly possess the Mosaic law as the Jews do, they still have received the law. Well, how does that work? Paul says it is written on their hearts. Now, even though this sounds an awful lot like the language used in Jeremiah 31-33 to describe the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant, we should not mistake it as such. Paul isn't referring to Christians for those who have, been, who have become new creatures in Christ have not only had the law written on their hearts, 
but they have also been given a love for it and a power to obey it. Rather, Paul is simply pointing to creation itself in which God has made each person in his image, meaning that he has created humans to be self-conscious moral people. By creation, we are moral beings. Therefore, by our created nature, we instinctively do things required by the law, even in our fallen state. As Paul says about the Gentiles who do not have the law, they by nature do what the law requires. Now, I have not infrequently heard someone who is not a Christian somewhat proudly proclaim, I don't need Christianity to live a good moral life. And they are, to some degree, making Paul's point here. One doesn't have to be a member of God's household to know what it is, to know that it is uh, the difference between wrong and right, know that it's wrong to steal or lie or murder or to have an affair. In fact, we probably all know non-Christians who seem to uphold all of these laws from the second tablet of the Ten Commandments better than a lot of self-proclaimed Christians we know. Perhaps you can remember the time before the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit delivered you from the dominion of darkness. In which you, even before you had been given a circumcised heart, knew wrong from right. I remember lying in bed as a young boy before I was truly a Christian. I would think back on the day and dwell for what felt like hours on things that I had said or done that I regretted. I stayed up worrying about these things. I felt deep guilt that I couldn't undo, so I would resolve in the quiet of my bed to try harder the next day to correct my behavior. I very much knew wrong from right, and I sought to live a morally upright life and recognized in the secret recesses of my heart that I had many failings. And this is what Paul is drawing our attention to here in this passage. Paul argues that unbelievers have an inner moral compass, if you will. That it's not merely due to social constructs of morality being impressed upon them from a young age, as some might claim. As one commentator puts it, this is observable, verifiable fact, which anthropologists have everywhere discovered. Anyone who has studied religion can tell you that you find the commandments in most, if not all, religions. Some of you may have read C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man, which is Lewis's thoughts on what he saw as subversive ways in which educators were indoctrinating children to question objective truths and accept relativism. And you might recall the famous appendix in the back of that book where Lewis lays out the moral rules from a variety of religions and philosophies that have spanned the ages, revealing that each says essentially the same thing. While some might argue that this is proof that all religions lead to the same truth, I think Lewis would say that it, what it does is point to an objective reality that exists regardless of one's willingness to accept it. Paul would say that this is simply proof that God has created us as moral beings who, regardless of having God's written law or not, have knowledge of an objective moral standard. And here in Romans 2, Paul gives us a detailed look at our created, God-given ability to discern wrong from right. He identifies for us three aspects or parts that work together to give us an innate moral knowledge, which I referred a moment ago to as our inner moral compass. 
I think that this idea of a compass provides a good illustration of the way in which our moral knowledge is at work within us. Just as an orienteering compass has a housing with marked directions, clearly indicating east from west and north from south, God has written on our hearts an instinctive knowledge of right and wrong. And just as a magnetic arrow with a painted red end is an essential navigational feature of an orienteering compass, God has created in us a similar mechanism, which serves to guide and prod us, indicating to us which way is up and which way is down, showing us when our life is out of alignment. This is our conscience, which Paul says here also bears witness. So we are given knowledge as well as a conscience to point us in the correct direction. But there's one more feature of our moral compass, which isn't like a standard compass. Our moral compass is more like a compass on a GPS, which is directed and powered by more than just a natural magnetic pull. So when we get off course, we hear the compass speaking to us, recalculating route, make a U-turn. Our thoughts which Paul says accuse or even excuse us, play a role in our moral discernment. So our moral compass involves our heart on which God writes the requirements of the law, our conscience which serve to guide our behavior and our thoughts which accuse us when we ignore our conscience or excuse us when we follow it. Unfortunately, just as having a compass in the woods doesn't guarantee you won't get lost, I can attest to that, having an inner Innate moral compass doesn't guarantee correct moral behavior. Only the knowledge to identify it. And so, as Leo Tolstoy has pointed out, the antagonism between life and conscience may be removed in two ways. By change of life or by a change of conscience. Given our fallen state, we typically choose the latter. So as the joke goes about the man troubled by his misbehavior, by his conscience, who went to see the doctor, when the doctor asked if he was looking for something to strengthen his willpower, he responded, no. I was thinking of something that would weaken my conscience. (laughs) Have you ever noticed, though, how despite the degree to which our culture moves into moral relativism, it can't seem to shake that nagging reality that something isn't right? All of the immoral behaviors that have been exalted as good are endlessly publicly justified. Any of you know someone who has acted in ways that clearly contradict the basic moral standards revealed in Scripture? And despite being reassured by culture that this behavior is acceptable, they are constantly trying to defend their actions? Why the need for explanation? Who are are they trying to convince? Paul would say, themselves. They are suppressing the truth that is self-evident. The secret of the truth is in their heart, though, and it will be exposed to their condemnation on the last day. So while there are those who have not been exposed to or received God's written law, they still have moral knowledge. They are, as Paul says in verse 14, a law to themselves. Paul's point is this. The standard by which everyone is judged, is the knowledge they have been given. The Gentile is judged by the knowledge written on the heart in creation. The Jew is judged by the knowledge of the written law, which Paul indicates here is of no advantage, because it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. 
And so God judges based on the knowledge given and whether the individual has lived up to their knowledge. Or as one biblical scholar puts it, the ground of judgment is their works, the rule of judgment is their knowledge. God therefore shows no partiality. And what is the verdict? Guilty. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Humanity's condemnation isn't a matter of ignorance. On the last day, the officer, there wasn't a speed limit sign. That excuse will not work. We all, by nature, have some knowledge which we all betray. And we can try to deceive ourselves about how good we are. We can try to deceive ourselves about how well we do living up to the moral standard we know, either externally or internally. But when we stand before Jesus Christ on the last day, the deceptions will end. All of our secrets will be revealed. All that has existed in darkness will be brought into the light, and only truth will remain. And the truth is that we will all stand condemned because none of us has lived up to the standard. Paul is making absolutely clear that if our justification depends upon us perfectly upholding the law, then none will be justified. If we are left to our own devices, our own obedience, our own goodness, and we are hopeless, there is no salvation. It doesn't matter how good you seem to be. It doesn't matter about how much you seem to care about others. It doesn't matter if you are honest or trustworthy or kind. It doesn't matter if you fought for justice or freedom. It doesn't matter how charitable, selfless, or loving you seem to be. None are righteous. We know that no one in the history of humanity has perfectly upheld the law except one, Jesus Christ. Only He has lived in perfect obedience to the law. Only he has lived a sinless life before God. Only he is righteous before the Heavenly Father. But having lived in perfect obedience, he has offered up his life as a spotless lamb, taking upon himself the sins of the world and the punishment that these sins deserve. He took upon himself the wrath of God. And in exchange for sin and death and punishment, he offers his perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness, his perfect union with the Heavenly Father, his everlasting peace and joy in life. And he offers this to you and to me. That you and me through faith might be found clothed in his righteousness before the judgment seat of God. Apart from Christ There is no salvation. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, who have accepted him as Lord and trusted in him as Savior, who have received his righteousness by faith, not by their own works, but by the grace of God, they will receive everlasting life in the joy of God's presence on that day when Christ comes to judge the living and the dead. Their justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So take your pick. Before the righteous judge, will you present your goodness, your works, your righteousness? Or will you trust in the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ? in his righteousness, in his all-sufficient sacrifice for sin.
Which is it? You can't choose both. Dearly beloved, if you have not fled from your sin and the illusion of your self-righteousness, if you have not clung to Christ alone for your salvation, I implore you, as Paul does in Romans 13, do not wait. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Christ has died. Christ is risen and Christ will come again. I end with this ancient Advent hymn, which might not sound like an Advent hymn to our modern ears. Day of wrath, O day of mourning. O what fear man's bosom rendereth. When from heaven the judge descendeth, on whose sentence all dependeth. Wondrous sound the trumpet flingeth, through earth's sepulchres it ringeth, all before the throne it bringeth. Death is struck, and nature quaking, all creation is awaking to its judge and answer making. Lo, the book exactly worded, wherein all hath been recorded, thence shall judgment be awarded. When the judge his seat attaineth, and each hidden deed arraigneth, nothing unavenged remaineth. What shall I, frail man, be pleading, who for me be interceding, when the just are mercy needing? King of majesty tremendous, who dost free salvation, send us fount of pity, then befriend us. Think, good Jesus, my salvation cost thy wondrous incarnation. Leave me not to reprobation. Faint and weary, thou hast sought me on the cross of suffering, bought me. Shall such grace be vainly brought me? Righteous judge for sin's pollution, grant thy gift of absolution. Ere the day of retribution. Dearly beloved, let us not miss the point of Advent season. May it be for us a time to ready ourselves for the return of Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father, none are righteous before you. No, not one. So we give you thanks that Jesus Christ has condescended to our level. He has taken on flesh, being born of a Virgin Mary. He has lived in perfect obedience to you. And he has offered up that perfect life for us. Father, may we flee to the cross of Jesus Christ to be washed in his blood, to be cleansed from our sin, to be clothed in his righteousness. That on the day when he returns, we may be found before you as those who are in Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Having heard the word of God, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Nicene Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of